Welcome to The Dig, a podcast from Jacobin Magazine. My name is Daniel Denver, and I'm currently broadcasting from my friend's walk-in closet in New Orleans in the midst of my book tour. These are difficult weeks. Something so incredible seemed to be in our hands, but now feels like it's slipping away. I spent countless hours since New Hampshire helping to mobilize canvassers in Massachusetts, hoping that a big win there would drive Elizabeth Warren from the race. Indeed, I hoped that running up our poll numbers before Super Tuesday might even force Warren to drop out ahead of Super Tuesday. After all, what sort of politician would risk losing their home state, particularly a politician like Warren, who already suffers from mediocre approval ratings and represents a state with a propensity to elect moderate Republicans. But Warren stayed in, harming a left candidate with a movement behind him and a real shot. And then, when she finally did drop out, she refused to endorse. For that reason, Warren will forever be remembered on the left as a destructive figure. This is no knock on Warren voters. The politics of voter scolding, deplorables, is bad politics. I want to win voters over. That's the point. But the politicians who those voters support and their high-profile supporters are entirely fair game for criticism. That's what politics is about. But while criticism is fair game and maybe even cathartic, my point in discussing Warren here is practical. I've long believed that best-case short-term, the Sanders socialist left must govern in coalition with the liberal left represented by Warren. We on the socialist left don't have the power to govern on our own, not even close. This situation, though, is, is clarifying. What we have learned is that many progressive liberals will stand with the establishment when confronted with a movement that demands transformative change. That's not a good thing. It's bad. But it does clarify the magnitude of power that the left must build. Liberal politicians will only follow our politics if they feel like they need to, if we have taken power but they certainly will not help us lead the fight to take power. If they sense that the advantage is with the center, they will play it safe and stay out of the fight. That is the lesson. At this point in the race, of course, Warren is no longer a factor. We must now look forward and fight Joe Biden. This is, again, a really tough moment, but no matter what, do not black pill yourself. It is not supposed to be easy to elect a socialist president of the United States of America. Five years ago, no one, socialists very much included, would think we would have ever had this shot. And yet here we are, in it. We still have a world to win. A lot of people are understandably very angry at the people and forces who have stood in our way. But we must 
focus on what's under our control, our actions and our movement, and how that movement now fights Biden, whose many deficiencies Bernie will make manifest in Sunday's debate. Don't assume that the race won't shift again. And even if it doesn't shift again, and yeah, that is looking rather unlikely, every conversation that you have, every person that you win over, every delegate that we secure, builds our power for the future. Standing here right now, I have never been more uncertain about what the world will look like in a few months or years than I am right now. Obviously, there are incredible dangers in this crisis. There will also, no doubt, be opportunities. We are not facing these setbacks and headwinds because people dislike Bernie. That is a small number of people who watch too much MSNBC or who are on MSNBC. We are facing these obstacles because people want to beat Trump. Biden is winning the electability contest, in part because party leaders united behind him after he crushed in South Carolina. Biden's electability argument was laundered by the media, who for months have fixated on the question of whether or not Bernie is electable. That is where the fingerprints of hegemony can be found, not in the answers, but in how the very question is posed. Because the question was always, is Bernie electable, rather than which of the candidates is most electable. It is a question that answers itself because the underlying premise of that framing is that Bernie is less electable. This became the common sense, even though it had no evidentiary basis. We should no doubt keep critiquing the media, but we must also understand that our critiques are unlikely to substantively change the way that the media operates. We need our own means of communication and organization that render their propaganda irrelevant. The reason Bernie lost so badly in South Carolina, in turn, is due to Biden's overwhelming support amongst older voters as a whole, across the board, but also particularly amongst older Black voters in the South. In many ways, this is part of that larger problem of electability, but keep in mind that Black America is generationally and geographically diverse, and that's something that's definitely getting lost in these postmortems. But still, winning over older voters, and winning over older Black voters in particular, is a real challenge and one that we must earnestly grapple with. Finally, Please beware those who exploit a moment of crisis to spread recrimination among comrades, advance sectarian agendas, or settle petty scores with rivals. We've built something powerful. Whatever happens, we must keep pushing. So many leftists in much weaker positions throughout history have done so, and so have our opponents on the American right. Did the conservative movement just give up after Goldwater got blown out by LBJ in 1964? No. Or after Reagan lost the 1968 primary and then again in 1976? No. 
The radical right carefully built institutions that ultimately exercised power and hegemony. Today, we are the ones who are winning the future. But we have to fight harder than ever before because our time is incredibly short. We want to build a new world, and that can be a lot harder than the right-wing politics of destruction. And what's more, again, climate change means that the clock is ticking. But the good news is that we have won over the majority on the issues, and we have won over the majority of young people to our politics. That's not a bad place to be for left-wing politics in the United States, the belly of the beast, the country that has long stood out from its peers for never having a real labor party or social democracy. We have already transformed the debate in just a few short years, putting once extremely marginal ideas like a Green New Deal and Medicare for All at the center of politics. And this election still isn't over. Do not stop volunteering and making those calls. I mean, New York will not even vote until seven weeks from now. Get your head straight and back in the fight. We are entering a set of intertwined public health, economic, and ecological crises. We need to be stronger and better organized than ever. Briefly, please support the dig that you love with the money that you have at patreon.com slash the dig. We also, as you likely know, will send you cool left-wing books in the mail if you donate at least $10 a month. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash the dig. Also, come see me in Texas over the next week talking about my book, All American Nativism. These are smallish events, so for now, they are still on. Just please do not shake my hand. This Saturday, March 14th in Houston at the Montrose Center, sponsored by Houston DSA. Then Sunday, March 15th in Far Texas, right near McAllen, in the Rio Grande Valley at the PSJA AFT office. This event, which is sponsored by DSA of the Rio Grande Valley, will be followed by a debate-watching event. Then Monday, March 16th, I am in San Antonio, sponsored by the San Antonio chapter of DSA and Poder, the Social Justice Caucus of the San Antonio Alliance. And I'll be in conversation there with immigrant rights leaders Carolina Canizales and Maria Fernanda Cabello. Wednesday, March 18th, I'm in Dallas at Deep Vellum Books in conversation with Christian Hernandez of North Texas DSA. And then Thursday, March 19th in Austin at the Workers' Defense Project, sponsored by Austin DSA. Okay, here's my short interview with Representative Ilan Omar, who represents Minnesota's 5th District. The audio is a little messy. Our connection wasn't great, but you can hear Representative Omar just fine. My normal length dig, and also very relevant to this present moment conversation with Ryan Grimm on his book, We've Got People, will be out tomorrow. 
Representative Ilan Omar, welcome to The Dig. Glad to be here. Thank you for having me. A lot of people are let down and downright terrified right now. This felt like such a big shot and and people feel like it's slipping away, and which is why I wanted to talk to you today. You were born in Mogadishu in 1982 and your family fled the civil war there and you spent four years in a refugee camp in Kenya before moving to the U.S. Today, of course, you're a member of the U.S. House and a leader in our resurgent U.S. left. What lessons can you share from your own experience to help everyone out there listening, to help us get our heads straight and and push forward? The lesson here really is to make sure that we are always hopeful and optimistic about what is possible. I reflect back on my first election when I ran against the 44-year incumbent to win a seat in the Minnesota House. And, you know, in Minnesota, we have a caucus process and you go through a convention to get an endorsement. And I had um, 56% of of the votes. You needed 60%. You had to hit the 60% threshold in order to get the endorsement from the Democratic Party in Minnesota. And um, one of the opponents, uh, there were, there, it was a three-way race. One of the opponents had nine delegates. Uh, and refused to release his delegates. And after 14 hours, um, we were denied an endorsement. Uh, And I remember, you know, these were, my delegates were mostly young people. I represented the University of Minnesota and Oxford University. And so most of our delegates were people between the ages of 18 and 24, and people who were getting involved in the political process for the first time, people who'd never caucused or came to a convention. And for them on a Saturday to stick around for 14 hours only to be denied an endorsement with 4% to go was really a, a huge blow to the energy and the, the spirit and the hopes that they had of what was to be. And towards the end of the night, I had an opportunity to address our delegates and many of our um, supporters and some of the other delegates who um, held their their support and commitment to their candidates until they were um, going to be released and were never released. And so I spoke to them and said, this really was a great opportunity for us uh, to really understand what, what this fight was going to be about. Um, So the fact that we were denied this endorsement isn't the end of our campaign, it's the beginning of our campaign. Um, Because oftentimes I think we forget how great opportunities are born from great challenges. And we can look back at the history of this country and see that every single challenge we've been presented with has allowed us to seek an opportunity and to push for uh, progress. The only time we've had regress in many of the progresses we've made is when we have decided to not utilize the opportunities that are presented by the challenges. And so today, I think it's important for us to realize that majority of the base on the left are young people. They are people who 
you know, live in the margins of society, people who have really been beaten up uh, and neglected and um, and set aside in this political process, people who don't see themselves represented in in government themselves or their interests or their priorities. And so we have an opportunity to make sure that this particular challenge that we have of of turnout and um, and 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 commitment is used as an opportunity for us not to only get angry and go to rallies and tweet, but to angrily and passionately organize our communities and have the difficult conversations that are necessary to urge people to to come and fight for for a seat at the table and. You know, I learned really a, a critical lesson from my grandfather, who was born in colonized Somalia, who really was never afforded the opportunity to live in a democracy after Somalia gained its independence, and was really excited about coming to the United States because this was a country where eventually everybody became an American, and everybody eventually had the opportunity to participate in its democracy. And he would tell us every day as he went to caucus and went to uh, vote and, and told others to vote that this is a, a right, a privilege, and an honor. And we must always uh, remember to, to fully utilize it. And so I think, you know, it's it's one thing to to be an activated organizer, an agitator, an activist, an advocate, but it's another thing to be a committed citizen who is uh, voting and actively um, engaging in in an equalized way at the ballot box. I have so much optimism because just like what you just said, young people have such great politics, and I'm so proud of everything that we've built on the U.S. left in such a short time in a way that it would be have been incomprehensible right. five years ago. But, but I also feel like we're in the early stages of doing what's necessary to build real power in this country, especially looking at things like mass worker militancy and powerful left institutions. But I think we're doing that. But on the other hand, I'm very worried because the, the climate change clock is is ticking. How do you recognize the time crunch that we're in without giving into despair and also really honoring everything that we've accomplished and putting it into some perspective. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, anytime there is regress and there is an oppressive way of, of, of governing, it happens as people feel exhausted by the process. And so we just have to make sure that we are not giving up, that we're not feeling exhausted by the many roadblocks that we currently see and utilize a lot of the gains that we have as an opportunity to energize ourselves to keep going. You know, I, I look at young people like my daughter who, you know, the mere age of 15, 16, 17 is, is very much excited about what it means to build a, a community of young people who are actively fighting against climate change. And they never really feel like 
they can stop. And so I know that for those of us who who are part of a generation who has felt like every time we stick our neck out and, and say this is what we want, you know, we are set back to get rid of that cynicism and, and to say this is the time. We got to keep pushing our movement, the candidates that we're supporting and and what we are trying to build isn't just for today. It is long term. And we can see the kind of impact that many of the new progressive voices have made in in Congress in, in shaping the conversation nationwide. Every single state, whether we've won or not, the exit polls show that the issues that we are emphasizing and prioritizing are also a priority for the majority of of the people. Uh, And so we have to remind the public and many of the people who are coming out to vote that this isn't about one particular candidate. This isn't about you know, who who you want to have a beer with or whose personality um, is is mostly like yours or, you know, who is familiar to you, um, who makes you feel comfortable or or who everyone tells you is, is, a, is a nice person. It's about the policies. It's about what this person is going to do once they get elected. And oftentimes there's a disconnect between the the kind of candidates that make you feel comfortable and make you feel like things will be normal once they are elected and and the kind of policies that will make you feel normal um and make you feel comfortable and so we have to not only stay alert um as as the progressive left but make sure that we are having critical conversations with people and making them recognize what's at stake. We're not only fighting the the tyrant in the White House and, and reclaiming decency uh, and and integrity um, and, and the honor of the White House, but we are actually trying to elect someone who will produce legislation and, and a policy agenda that is a, a reflection of, of the values and the priorities of the majority of, of Americans. There was a lot that was indecent about this country well before Donald Trump was elected. Right. And and I think that's that's where we right are 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 disconnecting. I mean I, I think about the the worst states for the worst states that have the racial the worst racial disparities. And I think about Cities that have that are like the worst place for black and brown people to live in, and those are often in the Midwest. And you know, and I think about like my visit to a penitentiary in Ayanna Presley's district that really show that majority of the places where there are policies that are not fully equitable and functioning for, for the whole society. They are places where there, there are, that there is a, a neglect 
in in having the, these critical conversations in 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 confronting the injustices that exist in our system. So I think we can talk about what what it means to 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 live in a, a cohesive society, one that is prosperous for everyone, that one that is equitable for everyone, one where people have economic equality, where there is you know, critical policy to address the climate crisis we all face, dealing with the current pollution that we have, inability of many of our, our citizens to access water, uh, clean water, um, and, and have breathable air, or just the, the kind of crippling infrastructures around uh, our schools and, and in many of, of our communities, or the lack of uh, access to food for many of, of our children um, and, and those that are vulnerable in our communities. These are conversations that we need to have throughout um, the country because majority of, of the people need and, and want to see an improvement in, in their lives. And we have the resources to be able to implement policies that will create that positive impact and we just have to find a way to to get people to have the willpower to be able to get it done. A friend of mine named Bathsheba DeMuth has been touring with a book that she wrote about climate change and she remarked recently that everyone she met over the age of 35 asks her for signs of hope. You know, your book is so depressing, climate change is so depressing, tell us why to be hopeful. But then everyone under 35 doesn't ask that question. They ask, what can they do? And I think that this is something that a lot of Bernie supporters have been struggling with, which is why so many of our elders, including our parents and grandparents, not my parents, but (laughs) some people's parents and grandparents, seem resigned to such a bleak future and find it so difficult to put their hopes in these big visions of a different and better world and society. And so this isn't obviously to beat up on our elders. It's more to ask that this point out that this is a very striking and urgent reality, this generational divide. How how do you think about that? And how do we all organize with our elders and win the multi-generational coalition that we need? Yeah, I mean, I think we have to place many of these people within the context of their place um, of of growth in 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 our country, right? So if you're if you're talking about anyone who is older than me, I'm 37. So anyone who is 10 years or 20 years or 30 years older than me, these are people who have not seen anything but incremental changes. People who have felt like there is. A, a government that is truly not of the people for the people that nothing really grand or transformative takes place the the earliest example of anything transformative they will point to is the ACA um and so these are people that you know also have not lived through or are fully i think disconnected about the the kind of challenges that presidents like FDR faced when they were implementing systematic changes um, that that brought about real prosperity. And so 
is to say these these policies are possible. Real change is possible. We must push for them. And not everything needs to come from the top. There is an opportunity here for us to be visionary and bold and loud about what our better tomorrow looks like and push everyone um, who is in, in a position of influence to, to create an actualization of, of that vision that we have. Well, Representative Ilan Omar, thank you very much. Yeah, thank you for having me. And keep on the fight. Ilan Omar represents Minnesota's 5th District in the U.S. House of Representatives. Thank you for listening to The Dig from Jacobin Magazine. As Marx once said, after noting that the tradition of all dead generations weighs like a nightmare on the brains of the living. While other podcasts have only interpreted the world in various ways, our point is to change it. We are posting new episodes every week. The Dig was produced by Alex Lewis. Music by Jeffrey Brodsky. Our communications coordinators are Julia Rock and Zachary Nin. Our senior advisor is Thea Riofrancos. Check out our vast archives at thedigradio.com. Follow us on Twitter at thedigradio, and please find us wherever you get podcasts and subscribe. If it's on iTunes or wherever, please also leave us a glowing review. Those reviews help introduce us to new listeners. But what really and truly does that is you telling friends, family, whoever, why you like the show. Please make propaganda for us. And do find us at patreon.com slash the dig and make a monthly contribution to help keep this operation up and running strong. Even a few bucks is huge. Mm-hmm.